All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Second Peter. Uh, we've the last couple of weeks we've been, you know, looking at uh, what is glory and how do you give glory uh, to the Lord. But the reason we did that isn't because I just thought, hey, I'd like to talk about glory for a few weeks. Um, the reason we're doing that is because at the end of Second Peter, uh, Peter told us to give glory to Jesus. And so let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. Let's read verses 17 and 18 together because uh, uh, that's, uh, that's going to sort of move us into this. Uh, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people, lose your own stability. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today again, and I pray that uh, even as we are preaching, Father, that we are a house filled with prayer. Uh, Each of us praying for your grace, for your wisdom, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your power and strength to be at work in us as we read your texts and and even praying that you would give us knowledge of of what we're hearing, that we may be a humble people humbled before your word. Uh, And Father, I, I pray that as we see all the glory that you tell us to give to Christ, that it will humble us because we are so inglorious. Uh, And that, Father, we would rejoice at the great love that you have lavished upon us, that we too can be children of God. And that is what we are through the work of your Son. So, Father, may we rejoice in our glorious Christ. May we give him glory both now and to the day of eternity. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so that, that, last, that last part of verse 18, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. So, so, so we are to take what we've seen, if we're to continue this idea of, of what we're doing, we're to take what we've seen the last few weeks on glory and, and how you glorify God, the, the, what, that the Old Testament taught the people that they're supposed to give to the, to the Lord God, and we're to give that same glory, that glorification, that job is now to be done is to be given to Jesus. And we saw we saw all that God was to be, be glorified for. We saw he's to be glorified for who he is uh, and what he's done, that, that he's to be glorified for his uh, great strength and, and, and power, that, that slaying dragons and saving the bride sort of thing. Uh, we've seen his holiness, that, that, we, that we tremble uh, before the majesty, the splendor of his holiness. We've seen all of this. And the truth is the list could go on and on. I just picked one passage that really focused on glory. And there's, there's, as you dig through, those are multiple things that you could glorify God in when you think about who he is and what he has done. So we're now to give glory to Jesus. But what are we giving glory to Jesus for? What is so glorious about Jesus Christ. If we are supposed to give glory to him, we have to know what that glory is. Again, the Bible never calls for us to give made up glory. That's what you do to idols, to the worthless things, the things without worth. But Jesus is not without worth. Jesus has great worth. He's got a reason to glorify him. Just as we saw with God uh, in the Psalms that that is glory due to his name. Well, what glory is due to the name of Jesus? What glory is due to Jesus Christ. What's he to be glorified for? Is it simply taking the same things that the Father is glorified for and, and, and applying those to the Son? Or is there something specific 
that Peter has in mind when he says, to him be the glory. What is that glory that Peter is thinking about? And I think we actually get a little insight into what glories of Jesus Peter's talking about by looking at the earlier part of verse 18. Remembering uh, that we may put punctuation and things like this, and, and, but these, these verses are all flowing, flowing together. Look at the end of verse 18. What does it say? To him be the glory. Well, who is the him, right? Who's the him? I mean, we did, to him be the glory. Who, who, who's the him? Is it talking about God the Father? Is it talking about, you know, Peter? Who's the him that we're supposed to give glory to? Well, not just Jesus, is it? What exactly does Peter say? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. To him, to who? To whom? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it is those names that are fueling Jesus's glory here because those are not, that's not just Jesus sort of legal name there, right? It's not just a, this is, you know, like Jesus filling out some sort of tax document and has to write out his whole long name. These are titles that Peter is giving to the man, Jesus, to the, to, to this Jesus. Here is, these are descriptions of who Jesus is, and they're pretty weighty descriptions, pun on a Hebrew word that doesn't happen very often. Uh, They're pretty weighty descriptions of Jesus. So to see what is so glorious of Jesus Christ, let's look at the titles given to him by Peter. And that's what we're going to do. So look at what it says. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Three titles and really a name, uh, all of which are packed with rich either biblical or theological truth, uh, filled with lots of scripture ideas, filled really with uh, value and weight, with honor, with, with glory. Uh, so, so what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to break each one of those titles down individually. Uh, We're going to find out, this is going to be called the glories of Jesus. We're going to look at why does Jesus deserve glory? And we're going to look at every one of those titles. We're going to look at Lord. We're going to see what's so glorious about Lord. We're going to see why the the title Savior is a glorious title. We're going to see why uh, that Christ is a glorious. We're even going to see why his name in and of itself is a wonderful name to be given, a purposeful name. And and then finally, we're going to see how all of the glory given to Christ is actually going to, that when we give glory to Christ, we are giving glory to God, uh, according to Scripture. So uh, we'll see all of those. But today, we're going to start out with Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord. So we're looking at the glories of Jesus. Today, we're looking at Jesus, our glorious Lord, what is, what is so amazing about Jesus being Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ? What does that even mean? Well, the, the truth is the word Lord in and of itself is nothing spectacular. It was actually a pretty common word. 
use it all the time. They would, uh, so in the New Testament, in New Testament times, it was equivalent to like the word sir, right? You ever had a conversation with someone and called them sir and you didn't mean it like some sort of grandiose title, right? Like, oh, nice to meet you, sir. It's not like, nice to meet you, sir. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, a, it, it is in the New Testament, it was just a, a form of proper etiquette. Uh, and, and sometimes in our Bibles, this word Lord is even translated that way. So, for example, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, what does she say to Jesus? The woman said to him, this is John chapter 4, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? That word, sir, is the exact same Greek word as Lord Jesus Christ. So that word, curious, the word Lord was just a, a way of, of being polite in, in terms of etiquette. So you could just say it to anybody that you met. Here she meets this man she doesn't know. And she says, hey, you're talking kind of crazy here, sir. Uh, where are you going to, you, you don't have a bucket, sir, right? I'm being polite, but, but I think you're a little off. Uh, it was a word you used to address fathers. So in, in Matthew 21, 30, uh, and he went to the other son, and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So here he's talking to his father, and he calls his father what? Calls him sir. Uh, but uh, again, not, not, a, not anything grandiose about that title, just being polite. It was the word you could use for a, for a husband in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Um, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So a husband could be called sir. Now, I think in 1 Peter 3, that use of the word sir is actually to get to the second meaning of the word sir. It's setting up uh, this uh, idea of being more than just uh, a sort of a customary, everyday sort of, sort of word. So sometimes the, in the Bible, this word Lord just means like, sir, like just a, something you do to be polite. But there are other times where it is a title and an important one in two ways that Lord could be used. Uh, one is, and sometimes in your Bible, they'll do this capital L and then O-R-D. Um, it could be used to mark that you were claiming that you were in service to this person. That they are your Lord, your master. So kings uh, could be spoken of this way. In the book of Acts, it does that. Uh, masters, like Matthew 6, 24, when it says no one can serve two masters, that's that word for Lord in Second Peter, to kurios, no one can serve two masters. So it's a word that can just mean masters, uh, someone who's in charge of you. Uh, it could also mean someone who, who owns something, so Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner, the kurios of everything. So th this word Lord can mean someone that you're supposed to be serving. We'll look at this meaning of the word uh, tied to Jesus next week. Uh, but there's another use of that word Lord, uh, and it's got its roots deep in the Old Testament and deep in, in the hearts of the Jewish people, really, that when Peter is saying this about Jesus to these Jews in the, uh, spread out in, uh, in the dispersion and whatnot, and it goes all the way back to the name of God himself. In Exodus chapter 3, 
God tells us his name, so to speak. Exodus chapter 3, look at Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. So this is God. This is what happens in Exodus 3. What's the famous thing that happens in Exodus 3? Remember, always remember chapters and, and crazy things that happen in certain chapters like Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. What happens in Exodus 3? I'm doing charades. Burning bush. Uh, which, Boogie, you're the one who'd never heard of charades before, right? He learned about charades on Friday. Was it Friday? Just learned the game charades. I'll talk to Brian and Megan about their parenting uh, later. Uh, Yeah, Exodus chapter 3, you've got the burning bush going on, and Moses is like supposed to go and tell these people that God's going to let them go, and he's supposed to tell Pharaoh, let the people go, and all this stuff. And Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And then down in verse 15, look at what it says. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And there it is, the the word, the Lord, right? The Lord, and he says, that is my name. Now, the the word here marked Lord, which is probably in all caps in your Bibles, uh, and and translated as Lord, is is not actually the, the Hebrew word for Lord there. The Hebrew word for Lord is the word Adonai, and that's not, if you're reading in your Hebrew text, as one is bound to do, uh, you will get to that passage, and it will not have the word Adonai. Uh, The Hebrew word that you'll see there is actually a group of four letters, uh, equivalent to, uh, if we're turning them into English, Y-H-W-H, probably pronounced something like Yahweh. Uh, And that's going to be an important name. So, So that name... Yahweh, those four letters are going to be repeated almost 7,000 times in your Old Testament. The Lord. And so if you go through your Old Testament, you're going to see the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, about seven, actually 6,828 times. If you're like, want to be precise as to how many times it's going to show up. The computer told me that. I didn't count them, right? I didn't go through and go one, two. Wait, did I count that one already? Okay, back one, two, uh, And it's built off the word to be, which is why it could be, you know, translated as as I am. Or or you can see God playing off that idea of I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. uh, That the word Yahweh is what God says his name is. He says, this is my name forever. Yahweh, that's my name forever and God repeats this idea later in Isaiah uh, Isaiah chapter 42 so here we are later in the life of Israel God hasn't decided to change his name Isaiah 42 verse 8 he says I am the Lord there again I am Yahweh that is my name the Lord I am Yahweh my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols in fact the people understood that this was the name of God so that David is, is writing in Psalm 68, Psalm 68, verse 4, he says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt 
before him. Literally, again, his name is Yahweh. Not the Hebrew word for Lord, but the word Yahweh. So from the mouth of God, Yahweh is my name. Uh, From the pen of David, yeah, God's name is Yahweh. Well, why don't we use that name? Why is it that in our Bibles it says Lord? Why isn't it even in our Bibles a lot of times? I mean, some of us, if we hadn't heard this, would, would never know that, that that's not the, the Hebrew word. It's a different Hebrew word. They just changed it. Well, what happened is that sometime after the writing of the Old Testament, sometime between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews began to say that the name of God itself was too holy to be said out loud. Uh, one tradition uh, said, and you got to say traditions uh, because... These are all just rabbis saying things that the Jews were more or less consigned to. One tradition said that, okay, the the name can be said because God writes it in scripture, right? But it can only be said by the high priest and only when he's in the Holy of Holies, right? That's the only time anyone can say it, high priest in the Holy of Holies. In fact, some rabbis said that if you said this name out loud, even if you were just reading through your Bible, right? You're a Hebrew Bible reader and you're reading out loud, like who's going to read, who's going to read from the text today? And hey, Jerry, it's your turn. And Jerry gets up and he reads and he says, the Lord, that is my name. And he goes, Yahweh, that they said that if you said the name, even while just reading the Bible, that you would have, quote, no place in the world to come because you'd said the name. Basically, it's like it would become like the Jewish unforgivable sin. Now, if, if, you're, if you know Jewish tradition, there are a lot of unforgivable sins uh, in the Jewish tradition. Now, mind you, the Bible itself never says that. And when God tells them his name in Exodus 3, and he says, tell this name to the people, tell them, Yahweh has sent you. That is my name. And, and think of all of the warnings that he gives the people in these moments, like come to the mountain, don't touch the mountain. Uh, all these things, none of them are, yeah, tell them my name, but oh yeah, wait. Also, tell them not to say it themselves. Now, you tell it to them, but then make sure they know they don't say it at all. The closest we get is, is maybe like the third commandment, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse seven, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Or maybe Leviticus 24, Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name. And in some translation, it even capitalizes the name, um, shall be put to death. But even in those places, right, it doesn't say don't say it, but it says things like don't use it in vain. It doesn't say don't use it. It says don't, not don't speak it, but don't blaspheme it. Don't speak ill of it. Either way, the Jews start replacing Yahweh in, uh, in their readings. with they don't, they don't replace it in the scrolls. They just replace it as their reading. So imagine 6,828 times where you see these letters and you have to remember not to say the letters that you're seeing, but to switch them with another word. Now remember that the scrolls that you're reading have no spacings between the words, right? And you're just reading and you get to it and you're just reading letters. And oh, whoops, uh, you know, so... Uh, the Jews start replacing the name Yahweh with the, with the word Adonai or Lord when they would read or when they would translate. So this becomes fairly standard. 
uh, in translations of the Bible, they all, all these translations begin to translate the name Yahweh with the equivalent word for Lord in whatever translation they're doing. So by, you know, you get the Greek Septuagint, uh, and, and in that, the, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was just prior to, to Jesus's uh, time on earth. You get this Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it translates the name Yahweh with the name Lord, with the name Kyrios, the same word that you see here in Second Peter. The Latin did the same thing. They put the word Dominus. And then English translations, what do we do? We use the word Lord, but we set it apart from other word Lord by doing what? Capital L, capital O, capital. That way you can know this is going to be Lord, but it's not really Lord. All right. This is, this is just, this is a different word here because it doesn't, it doesn't want to confuse us, which in the end gets confusing. But they distinguish it that way. So again, if you look at Exodus 3.15, yours probably doesn't say Yahweh. It probably says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So that by the time you get to the first century and, and Peter's readers, it was common practice for the Jews to never say the name. To never say the name. But instead to refer to God himself as the Lord. To refer to the one true God as the Lord. You can actually see it on the lips of some of the New Testament folks. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, in the Old Testament, it says prepare the way for Yahweh. But here, John quotes the verse, but he uses the generic word Lord, instead of what would have been found in their Hebrew Bibles. And so, again, before we get all upset, you know, and think people are trying to take the name of God out of the Bible uh, or something like that, realize that Jesus himself does this even a, a few times. So when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, he replaces the word Yahweh with Lord. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, when he says, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, uh, he, do, he replaces Yahweh with the word kurios. I mean, he doesn't put, he doesn't say you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test. He says your Lord. So either Jesus didn't say, didn't say Yahweh, but instead Lord, or the New Testament authors who were inspired by God when, when quoting Jesus used the word Lord. You know, he was speaking in Aramaic or whatever. And, um, Either way, what we see here is the divine permission is at least that you can use Lord instead of Yahweh and it's not some great sin, right? So uh, if, if the Lord was trying to make a point, hey, you guys shifted this in between the Old Testament and the New Testament and you quit using my name, it would have been very easy for him to make it clear when Jesus, I mean, Jesus made a lot of things clear about what they were messing up about the law. And if Jesus wanted to say, hey, you guys need to start using the name. It's not like the, the reverse Voldemort. Uh, you need to start using the name because the Lord gave us the name. Uh, he could have done that. And if Jesus had done that uh, and they're translating it, uh, if they wanted to translate it kurios instead of, I know Jesus said Yahweh, but we can't write Yahweh. We've got to write kurios. The, the, the Holy Spirit would have inspired them to write whatever he wanted written specifically. And, and he doesn't. So it's either way, it's at least not some great sin. Uh, to to not have it. Um, so all of that, 
uh, is to give you a little Bible history. Now you know, and knowing is half the battle, right? So now you know when you see L-O-R-D that that's really the Hebrew word uh, Yahweh. But also that's important because when Peter says that Jesus is Lord, He's not just being polite and he's not just saying that Jesus is some great leader. He is saying that Jesus is God. That the glory that was due to Yahweh, that the Lord in the Old Testament, that glory that was due to him is now due to Jesus because he is the Lord. He is our God. Now, Peter, by the time he's writing this, is not exclaiming something that hasn't been said. The Bible is filled with people saying that Jesus is the Lord, both and pulling in both of those meanings. Jesus called the Lord a lot in the New Testament. In fact, he's called the Lord over 150 times. Uh, Interestingly enough, do you know the first person to call him Lord? chronologically, not canonically, like in, in, in his life that's recorded. Uh, actually, Peter, first one to call him Lord in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Remember when Peter and them have been fishing all night and they can't catch anything? And then Jesus is like, drop your net over there. And they're like, oh, and he does. Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's the first time we have recorded in the life of Jesus where someone called him uh, Lord. But this becomes a very common way then throughout the rest of uh, church life. So in the the New Testament letters, uh, Jesus called Lord over 120 times in those letters. So uh, sometimes it's a clear reference that Jesus is in control, that Jesus is master. Now, other times it it seems to be this reference to his divinity, that he is the capital L-O-R-D, Now, both of them carry glory, and that's how we're going to look at both. But again, today, we're looking at Jesus as Lord. So three meanings of Lord, sir, uh, master, owner, king, and then God himself. Uh, And we're going to focus on that last one, Jesus as the Lord. Uh, And again, there are times where this reference to Lord is pretty clear. Uh, And one of those first times that it happens is actually from Jesus himself. One of the first people to reference Jesus as Lord and to make it clear that he is Lord is Christ himself. Um, There are all these references where Jesus refers to himself as Lord, but might have other meanings. But there are sometimes, take for example, when he says that he is the Lord of the harvest or he is the Lord of the Sabbath, those might just be meaning that he is the master of the harvest. He's the one in charge of the harvest. He's the one in charge of the Sabbath. He's Lord over the Sabbath. Like it's in subjection to him, not him in subjection to it. But Jesus is sometimes explicit in saying, look, I'm not just another man. When you read about the Lord in the Old Testament, you're reading about me. I am the Lord God in the flesh. So for example, Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. We begin to get allusions to this early on in Jesus' ministry. So Mark chapter 5 says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been, so this is the demon possessed man, right? The crazy demoniac begged him that he might be with him. And he didn't permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. 
and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So Jesus tells the guy, tell them what the Lord has done. But this isn't just some reference. Hey, go tell them how good God's been to you. Just tell them what God's done. It's to tell them what the Lord has done. And apparently it's pretty clear when Jesus is telling him that the Lord is me because the man seems to recognize that because he went and told everyone what Jesus had done. In fact, Mark makes a point of using parallel wording here uh, where it says, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And the man went and told them how much Jesus had done for him, uh, that Jesus is in fact the Lord. But perhaps, so, so there you get it, it's, it's hinted at. You can see it and go, ooh. But perhaps the most clear is actually John chapter 8. I think John really lays out Jesus as, as the Lord in the flesh, right? This isn't surprising because how does John begin? Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Uh, glory is that they only gotten from the Father full of grace and truth. So you, so you, you, you already know that, that John is stressing Jesus is God. And here in John chapter 8, you're going to see Jesus stress that, yeah, I am God. <laughs> Look at verse 56 through 59. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus, although Jesus doesn't use the Hebrew word Yahweh here. It is clear what passage in the Old Testament Jesus is pointing back to when he says, oh, okay, you want to know how, how I saw Abraham? Let them know that I am, right? Uh, that's referring back to what we saw in Exodus. You tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. He, he's using this phrasing that was common for God to use in the New Testament. A phrase that was built off his own name as the I am. So we saw Isaiah say, look, Yahweh, which is again built off that I am saying. Yahweh is the name of God. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am. What's interesting is, is the Septuagint. It doesn't, it, you don't have the he. It's the exact same words that Jesus uses in John chapter 8. You tell, this is what? The I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am. In fact, Jesus uses this same phrase again later to reassure this, his disciples. This I am phrase in John chapter 13, verse 19. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. We supply the he. It's really just the same thing that he said uh, back there uh, in John chapter 8, uh, in verse 58, when you said before Abraham was, I am. The exact same Greek uh, is going on here. This is so that when this takes place, you may believe that I am. 
And John, I think John is clearly trying to show us that this phrase means something because this phrase appears again in John chapter 18 where John highlights the power of this word I am. John chapter 18 verses 4 through 6. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Again, we supply the he. I don't know why. I don't like it. But they do in the ESV. It's all right. We'll give them a break. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Same phrase. Same phrase in John 18, John 13, John 8. And sometimes it's funny. We get to this weird reaction here in John 18. We go, why did they fall down? Why did they draw back and fall down? What happened? But if Jesus is tying his name to the great I am, then these words should have made them fall down on the ground willingly, right? They should have heard he's the I am and should have drawn back and fallen to the ground like people do just in the presence of mere angels. This is the I am. And so he makes them do it. Beginning of the Lord's sovereign work on people's hearts. Uh, And the people there, the people hearing this, they knew what he was doing. What happens in John 8 after he says, I am? What do they do? Do you remember? They pick up stones to do what? Not to build him an altar. Uh, they're, not, they're not like, let's make some booths for you. Uh, it says they picked up stones to stone him with. It's clear that the Pharisees knew what he was pointing to. They knew that Jesus was taking up the name of God for himself. And so they picked up stones to stone him like they were supposed to do if anyone misused the name, right? He's just blaspheming the name, saying that he is the Lord. We're supposed to stone him. If there was one thing that Jesus' enemies were clear on, it was that he kept claiming to be God, right? So in John chapter 10, verse 33, what does he say? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, which is kind for people to explain why they're about to pelt you in the face with stones. It's not because you've done good things that we're going to stone you, but for what? But for blasphemy. Remember what we saw back in Leviticus? Don't blaspheme the name. Because you being a man, make yourself God. So here, again, in John 8, Jesus takes the name, takes Yahweh, the I am, that famous, unsayable name, and Jesus says, yeah, that's me. I'm the one that Abraham was having faith in, that he was looking for. I am that I am. And so then it's not long after the resurrection that this idea of Jesus as the Lord begins to take off and become a foundational part of the gospel message that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. So, so the very first sort of skeptic, not the first skeptic, just the one who gets blamed for it. Remember the other disciples did this too, but doubting Thomas gets the one who's, who's always picked out. And it was like, wait, you guys doubted just a few days ago. Uh, in, in John chapter 20, verse 28, what does Thomas proclaim? My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Well, he does correct him, but just for taking so long to realize this. And the early church kept that title for Jesus. This was no mere man. This was the Lord. In fact, Peter does it a lot. Peter, who was the first one to say it, is also one of the ones who speaks about it the most. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. 
Well, how's Jesus refer, how's, how is Peter referring to Jesus as the Lord here? Well, Peter is quoting here from Psalm 34, verse 8, where it says, Taste and see that the Lord, and what's the Hebrew word for Lord there? Taste and see that Yahweh is good. And here Peter says, If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, this stone rejected by men. So he applies that goodness of the Lord and says that Lord is Christ, the stone that was rejected by men. Or how about 1 Peter 3.15? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Look at what's Peter doing here. Peter is not just coming up with some neat little way to talk about God. He's referring back to words of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, that's what he's, he's re-quoting Isaiah 8 verse 13 where it says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Again, not just the master of hosts, him, the the Yahweh of hosts. That's the one you honor as holy. And Peter is now coming and taking this verse and this phrase that they all knew you give to the Lord. And he says, hey, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Holy. So Isaiah 8, honor Yahweh, the Lord as holy. Him you shall honor. Peter says, yeah, so give that honor to Christ because he is Christ the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. And so for our purposes of seeing glory, perhaps no verse is more clear about the glory of the Lord as Jesus or this idea than than like James. We know James, James, the half-brother of Jesus who Previously, was not the greatest believer of what his brother was doing. But by the end of his life, James recognizes just how unlike his brother he is. That his brother Jesus is none other than the Lord God. So James chapter 2 verse 1. He says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Or how about Stephen in Acts chapter 7, this story. Remember how his, his sermon begins? You get people trying to silence him for talking about Jesus. And in Acts chapter 7, I love this. This is a beautiful, this is great storytelling by the Lord. Great story making. I guess would be a better way to say it. In Acts chapter 7, verse 2, it said, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. So remember, that's how he starts out the story. The God of glory appeared to Abraham, but then go to the end of Stephen's story, right when he's about to be stoned, in, in verses 54 through 58. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. I think it's, I think. 
Acts chapter 7, you see this huge, ironic sovereignty that just like Abraham, the glory of God appears to Stephen. And who does he see? Who does he mention seeing? The same one that if you remember, Jesus says that Abraham saw. Him. Jesus. So one thing that is clear to the disciples and clear in the New Testament, clear to the early church, is that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so, I mean, there are multiple times where it just references him as God. We focused on just the parts where it says that he is the Lord. So when we see Lord, we know it's referring back to the Lord sometimes. But the Bible's clear. Jesus is God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Because what is he finishing with here in Second Peter? He is our Lord and Savior. Notice the parallel. He begins, this is Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. He ends it with Jesus, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So he's obviously tying a connection between the word Lord, not just as master, but as the Lord. In Titus chapter 2. 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions that live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Sounds like uh, Paul had been reading Peter's stuff. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there again, we see all the same titles except the word Lord transposed with the word God. So what has become clear to God's people is in our salvation. And this is where the glory comes in. Not is he just glorious because this is the Lord. This is Yahweh and he deserves glory. It is clear to God's people that the Lord himself has come to save us. But this is not a surprising turn of events. I mean, John chapter one isn't surprising. If you've been reading your Old Testaments, as they would have been. I mean, you get to John chapter 1, you go, yeah, that's what he said was going to happen. So he said he was going to do. It's not like John chapter 1 comes and people are like, what? He's coming down here? In fact, the Old Testament is full of God making the promise that I am going to come myself and save you. There's a reason that believers didn't marvel. And there's not some great explanation in the Bible about how in the world could Jesus be God? And how could God come down and save us? Because that has always been a part of the gospel message. Just take, for example, Isaiah chapter 40. Just one example, because I knew at this point, We'd be getting near the end of time, right? And we can't just flood you with all the examples, but we'll give you one really good one. You can judge how good it is later. Look at how the Savior, being God himself, was actually the Old Testament expectation hundreds of years before Christ came, in some cases millennia before Christ came. The seed that would crush the serpent. Uh, Okay, sorry. Not going to get into all the other ones. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40. Beginning in verse 1, let's, 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So comfort them. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. 
So in the wilderness, you're in the wilderness, right? Not great things there. Prepare the way for God. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So we're in the wilderness, but who's coming? The Lord. We're in the desert, but who are we making a highway for? Our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. All flesh is going to see that glory. It is clear that it is God who is coming in the midst of the wilderness. We're in the desert. Who's coming to save us? Well, look at what it says down in verse 9. After saying, look, everything, this is that great funeral passage, right? Between verses 5 and verses 9. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. What word of the Lord is going to stand forever? Verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, herald of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. So we've just gotten ready, right? Just gotten ready in the wilderness, make a path, make a highway, and then you go up, and what do you shout from the hilltop? Behold whom? Your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So make the highways ready. Make them why? Because God himself is coming. The Lord is coming. Yahweh is coming to do what? To shepherd his people. And in Jesus, the Lord has come. Who does Jesus say that he is? The great shepherd of the sheep to gather his sheep, just like he promised long ago. And when the early church realizes that, what else could you call Jesus but the Lord? So what glory does Jesus deserve? The glory that one would give to the Lord himself in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh, tabernacling with his people again. And now he is turning his people into his tabernacle. A new Jerusalem built not out of stones and brick, but out of holiness and Godwardness. A glorious city composed of glory-filled people whose lives are one word, glory. Glory to the Lord. Let's pray. As we take a moment to bow our heads and pray, just, just take time to give glory to the Lord right now. Just praise God. Praise God for who he is, for what he has done. And recognize that Jesus is that Lord who comes to save his people, who comes in the midst of your wilderness, who comes when you're in the desert and gathers you like a shepherd. Who tends you, who gently leads you. Glory, glory to the Lord. That the God you sinned against is the one who's come to save. That Jesus Christ 
is our God, our Lord. Oh, how this will help us tie all that we read in the Old Testament into Christ. How we'll see all the promises of God have their yes in him. And we'll go, how is that possible? What does that mean? That Jesus would get the glory due to the Lord God. The maker of heaven and earth and the savior of his people. You want to know how to apply these verses and this to your life. The chief way you apply it is is not by some list of steps now. But the same thing we saw in Psalms. Just one word. Glory. If you leave here today with one word on your lips. Let it be glory. And if that word fills your mouth and your heart then you have worshiped today. You have seen what this text has called you to do. Glory. Glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for sending your son to die for us. We are thankful for a God who loves his people so much that he comes and rescues them in spite of themselves. That when we were living (laughs) just like those who came to arrest Jesus, living in rebellion against you, you allowed us to see your glory and you struck us and threw us down that we might live. So, Father, I pray that we would see just how glorious you are. That is your, if there's anyone here who who has not thrown down their lives in, in, in the face of your glory, who has not cried out, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, who has not said, I have seen the glory of God now and, and what am I to do? That, that anyone here recognizing your glory for the first time and their sinfulness would cry out to you for salvation, would know that that is what you came to do to save your people, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Father, I pray for those of us who have known you, who have seen your glory, both as it, as it awoke our hearts and as we see it every day in your kindness and goodness and your constant shepherding of us. That, that our lives would be filled with glory and praise to you. as we rejoice in what you have done for us, as we see your glory in Jesus Christ, the Son, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.